This is Truth Encounter, and as we proceed through our study of Deuteronomy, we arrive today at chapter 18, a chapter which raises this issue of money and church. Our subject is making a living in the ministry. Dave begins our discussion by talking to several of the children in his church about what they want to be when they grow up. And then he shares some of the dreams he had as a child about the future and how the Lord led him into full-time ministry. You want to be a comedian? What do you mean you want to be a comedian? I think you already are a comedian. Well, when I was your age, I mentioned I wanted to go to West Point, and then I progressed. I went to high school, and in high school, one of my friends said to me one day it would be a very exciting thing to become a medical doctor. And so I decided, well, that was, a, that was really a creative thing to be. And so I spent all four years of college majoring in chemistry and minoring in biology and applying to medical school because I was going to go into medicine. That was the dream that I had. Well, here I am, and the Lord didn't lead me to go to West Point, and the Lord didn't lead me to go, to, to go into medicine. Instead, he led me into ministering the Word of God. The thing I want to talk to you about today is that what I've done is the most fulfilling thing that I would have done. And I believe that I speak to this audience that there's some of our children, there's some of you that as you grow up are going to find out that when you study this book, when you read it and you begin to pray about it, that it just starts to come together for you. And when you begin to teach others, they respond. And the Lord uses the teaching of the Word of God to build their lives. And you're going to have a tremendous hunger to commit your life to teaching people the Word of God. And we call that, as you get trained in that, you go into the pastoral ministry. If the Lord has gifted you to teach the Word of God, then one of the greatest things that you can ever do is commit your life to doing that full-time. We don't push the idea that the full-time ministry is like an elite group and it's somebody that's in a totally different class. I don't believe that. But I do want to communicate that I do believe that the Lord does uh, put his Holy Spirit upon certain individuals within the, within the body of Christ, and they are gifted to be pastors. They're gifted to go to the mission field, to go overseas, and, and to become evangelists there to proclaim the Gospels. I look around this audience, and the audience is filled with many different kinds of people that are in what we call, quote, quote, the full-time ministry. And what that means is that the rest of God's family recognize their giftedness, recognize some of the abilities they have, and they free them up and provide for their livelihood, give them support so that they can devote all of their time into ministering the Word of God and in proclaiming the Gospel. Now that idea of the full-time worker that devotes himself full-time to church ministry or to biblical ministry has raised some very interesting realities down through the centuries. And I want to begin just kind of creating an artificial or imaginary scenario. And maybe this will bring back to mind some of the things that you remember from your own upbringing or some of the things you've heard about full-time ministry and the support of full-time ministry. I want you to imagine that the year's annual board meeting of the church has convened. Deacon Smith is sitting there around this mahogany table, and the subject of the day, in fact, the place is jammed because the subject of the day is the minister's salary. That's always guaranteed. The annual board meeting is going to discuss the minister's salary. It's guaranteed to produce a lot of emotion. 
And Deacon Jones is sitting there, and what he's thinking in his mind is he believes what his father always told him, ministers need to be kept like good bird dogs, lean and hungry. Now, Deacon Smith is sitting across the mahogany table, and as they prepare for this discussion, Deacon Smith is sitting there, and he remembers his father around their Sunday dinner table, pushing back from the fried chicken, back then you could eat fried chicken, and the mashed potatoes with gravy all over it, and the string beans, and he remembers his father pushing back from the table and patting his big round stomach and saying, Whew, what a message that was today. Three Ps again. Peace, prosperity, and progress. And then he remembers his father thinking like, you know, I wonder how long it took him to get that ready together. He had three Ps. He had three jokes from Reader's Digest. He ended with the essay from Time. And Deacon Smith's father would say, you know, I could have gotten that message together watching the college game of the week yesterday afternoon in a couple hours. What a job. One hour on Sunday, a couple hours watching, getting your methods together while you're watching the NCAA college game of the week, a couple of visits in the hospital, and the rest is just coffee and donuts and a good time. Man, what a lush job. Now there's one other deacon sitting around the table. He's the chairman of the board, Deacon Carpenter. Now Deacon Carpenter was raised as a pastor's kid. He's not a pastor's kid anymore. I know he's still a pastor's kid, but he's not a pastor because he decided that he would never, never be dependent upon the graciousness of God's people. Instead, Deacon Carpenter went into business. No one would ever say that he lived off the dole. In other words, he worked a really hard job, and he remembered in his mind the conversations that he overheard in his bedroom while his mom and dad were talking late at night. And he remembers them talking about how they're going to try to meet their bills. And he remembers watching them work 70 and 80 hours a week. And lately, he was talking to his own wife and said, you know, mom and dad are at retirement age now. What do they have to show? 70 and 80 hour weeks. And what did they get for it? An empty bank account and nothing but people's criticism. Now, that scenario will describe some of the tension and some of the stresses of being involved in full-time ministry. I want to share with you as we open up to Deuteronomy chapter 18 today. This is a subject that I would never talk to you about unless we were a Bible church and it comes up in the flow of our going through a book. But because we are a Bible church, and because I believe that as we go through the scripture, the Lord God talks to us about some areas that are really important. Today we want to talk about this issue. Is it right... For some of the men and women in the family of God to receive their support from a full-time ministry of teaching the Word of God, is it right for God's people to free them up and give to meet their needs? And is that a legitimate thing? Some of you are even from some religious backgrounds where that was, that was denied and it was negated and it was looked upon as being a very negative thing. So what we want to do today is we want to raise this issue. Is it a valid way for some of our young people to find out that they're gifted to minister the word, to get training to do that, to be anointed by God's people, to be recognized as having that kind of ability? Is it right for them then to go out and put food in their table and put roofs over their heads and clothes in their back? Is it right for some of our kids to look forward to going in to that kind of a vocation, 
Is it biblically sound? Now let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 18. In the Old Testament, the group uh, within the children of Israel that were in full-time ministry was a group that you all know well. They were the priests and the Levites. And as we begin Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses, as he founds this nation like we've been learning in the book of Deuteronomy, he's laying the foundation for all of these people. And we have a section that's devoted to the full-time ministry under the Old Covenant. Let's look what it says. The priests and the Levites. I'm going to translate it that way because I think in the Old Testament that all the priests were Levites, but not all the Levites were priests. The priests, as the Old Testament developed, became those who were in one of the lines of Aaron that God especially chosen to be the priests that served in the central sanctuary. So I'm going to translate it, the priests and the Levites... Indeed, the whole tribe of Levi. So we've got all the tribe of Levi, but within the tribe of Levi, we're going to have one group that are not priests that minister in the central sanctuary. We're going to have another group that's specifically ordained by the Lord to minister and to take care of the sacrifices in the central shrine that the Lord called them to put up. He says, are to have no allotment or inheritance within Israel. In other words, all the other tribes the tribe of Asher, the tribe of Gad, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Judah, and on and on it goes, the tribe of Issachar, all the different tribes, as we look at the book of Joshua, are given an allotment. They're given a section of the land. For example, the tribe of Judah received the area that you know well, which is the area around Jerusalem that included Bethlehem. If you go a little bit to the north, just five or ten miles to the north of Jerusalem, you begin to enter the tribe of Ephraim's territory. The city of Samaria in the northern kingdom was right smack dab, smack dab in the middle of the section of the land that was given to the tribe of Ephraim. And on and on it would go. Way up in the north, you had a whole section, the beautiful ski country of Israel. They didn't ski in the ancient world, but the modern, uh, beautiful area up around Mount Hermon was given to a tribe called Dan, and on and on it would go. Every one of the tribes received a section of the Holy Land. The Levites, the one tribe of Levi, no inheritance like that. In other words, they did not receive a section of the land. What they did receive, they received cities, and that's going to come into play at the end of our section today because we're going to find out that they could have an inheritance within those cities. They might own a home. They might have a small parcel of land. The Levites had all of these cities scattered throughout the land. And I want you to begin to think about why the Lord would scatter these Levites in all these cities from the northern part of the land all the way to the south. But they didn't receive an inheritance of a specific section of the land. Instead, that it be spread out throughout the land. Now it says this, they shall live, in other words, they shall sustain themselves. They're going to make their living. They shall live on the offerings made to the Lord by fire. For that is their inheritance. The inheritance of this tribe of Levi under the Old Testament was the, the sacrifices of the Lord's people, the offerings of the Lord's people. It says they shall have no inheritance, repeating again, they shall have no inheritance among their brothers, no special section of the land. Instead, the Lord is their inheritance as he promised. 
Then it goes on and tells us something specifically about the portion of the sacrifice that the priests and Levites were to get. This is the share due to the priests from the people who sacrifice a bull or a sheep. It says the shoulder, the jowls, or the, the cheeks, and the inner parts. You are to give them the first fruits of your grain, new wine and oil, and the first wool from the shearing of your sheep. For the Lord your God has chosen them and their descendants out of all of your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord always. Let me just give you a feel for what he's describing here. He's telling us that the Levites and the priests are not to have a special section of land. What they are to have is as the people bring sacrifices to the central sanctuary and as they slay their bulls and as they slay their sheep, it's saying that the, that the shoulder would be given to the priests and part of the cheeks and certain others. In fact, to be honest with you, the Old Testament is not that exact on the specific parts. In fact, I believe as we look at the law of Moses that the specific part that was due to the Levites would change from time to time. Like Exodus says that they get one part, Deuteronomy says they get another. As we look later on in First and Second Samuel, we can see that the people were giving something else. But I want, I want to give you the feel of this. If you were Old Testament people, you would bring, for example, a sheep. You would bring it and the priest would slay the animal for you and then you would help that priest dress out the animal and many times they would boil the animal in water. When it was all prepared, when it was all prepared, you would graciously take the designated parts that Moses had instructed where the Levites and the priests do and you would graciously give that to them. And they would take it from you as your expression of, of praise and thanksgiving for what God had done. There were also times at this, for example, in the three feasts that they had in Deuteronomy. Um, in Deuteronomy, three times a year, remember, we learned that they would come up to the central sanctuary. And they told us that at that time that the Levite was to be included in the meal. For example, all of your family would gather together. And you would bring the first fruits of your crops, the first of your grain, the first of your harvest, and you would, would bring all of your family together, all of your servants, and you would invite the Levite as well to meet with you. And he was dependent upon your graciousness. As you gather at these three central sanctuaries, your family would invite all the Levites to come, and you would take part in that feast with you. It'd be kind of like having a Thanksgiving meal and at the Thanksgiving meal, you would invite Mary and Dave to come over. You don't have to do that, but I'm just saying that would be an illustration of that, okay? And that's where they receive their sustenance. Now, it tells us one final thing in the, in the next section of this little paragraph on the full-time ministry in the Old Testament. One final thing. It tells us that the Levites that were scattered out in all these cities... These Levites could come down to the city of Jerusalem, which later became the central sanctuary. And they might come down after selling their house and selling some of their fields, and they might have some money in their pocket, some inheritance money that they received from selling off some stuff back home. What it's telling us is this. The rest of the priests can't get together and say, well, you got a good bank account and your needs are already taken care of, and so you don't need to have any portion of the sacrifices that are coming. Instead, according to the law of the Lord, if one of these Levites came, say, example, from up in the northern part, say, up by Galilee, 
and he was from that northern portion of Israel. He came down to Jerusalem, and he wanted to serve the Lord. And he wanted to be there at the central sanctuary. It's saying that all the rest of the priests and Levites needed to open up their hands and give the portions that were due the priests. And every one of them would get their fair allotment. Now, what was the idea of this in ancient Israel? Let me tell you the heartbeat that's underneath this. First of all, under the Old Testament law, the idea of the covenant, the idea of God's word, the idea of the revelation, in the Old Testament, that meant the law of Moses. And the law of Moses was the covenant that God made with his people. And the book of Deuteronomy is telling us that the people of Israel's very life depended upon knowing that covenant, knowing what God had instructed. And God meant for this tribe of Levi to dedicate their entire life to going throughout Israel, teaching the people so that they would be absolutely sure that all the people knew the covenant of God. I can give you an illustration of how important it is. Like I had somebody in my office yesterday. It's a couple that's thinking about getting married. And we started going over some of the instructions that God gives to a young couple that's about ready to get married. And this particular couple hadn't been exposed to a whole lot of that. In fact, the girl hadn't been raised with a background that, that where mom and dad brought their kids to church. So for this couple, a lot of this stuff from the Word of God was very new. It was something that they hadn't heard. Well, we can have, have, have the idea like, so what? You know, what's the big deal? So what if they don't know what God's Word says about marriage? It makes a big difference. It makes all the difference in the world. Like, why do we even get married? Why don't we just live together? Why don't we just trade partners? What's the role of a husband? What's the role of a wife? You see, how do we know all those things? Some of you that have been raised being exposed to Ephesians 5 and Genesis 1 and 2 and 1 Peter 3, live with your wife in an understanding way and all those verses, you just take it for granted. But there's a whole generation of people out there that have hardly heard anything about God's covenant. Do you realize that the reason that we get married is that the Lord God of heaven wants you and your husband to get involved in a sacred drama? that your relationship together acts out the most beautiful story ever told, the greatest story ever told, and that's really why you need to stick it out. Instead, most of us get married, just it makes us feel better. It makes us feel self-fulfilled. We're a little bit lonely. We're going to talk about that. And some of you that have been taught the Word of God from the time you are little, you just take for granted, sure, I know where Genesis is. A whole lot of young people that I work with, you hand them a Bible, they don't know, you know, Ephesians, Philippians, you know, John. What is that? And the Levites' responsibility in the Old Testament was to be sure that every young child, every teenager, every young adult, every mature adult knew the covenant of God. It's an awesome responsibility. And I want to share with you that I believe that the Lord gifts you to teach the Word of God, that it's one of the greatest responsibilities that anyone could ever, ever have. And God meant for these Old Testament Levites to lead the people in instructing them in the Word of God. Second of all, they were to lead the people in worship. We've learned about how the Levites led in music and how they banged cymbals and they blew sofas and trumpets and they pounded on drums and all that stuff and they gathered the people in a great praise to the Lord because they loved the Lord and they wanted to serve Him. The final thing they did is they led the people in sacrifice and we've learned how they were fed 
from the sacrifice. So you put it all together. The Levites are totally dependent upon the graciousness of all the Israelites because if, they, if the Israelites don't come to the temple to worship, if they don't come to hear the word of God taught, then the Levites aren't going to eat. So the Levites are totally dependent upon the movement of God among the people of God for their provision. Now let's think about it. How do you think it worked out in the Old Testament? How did the children of Israel respond to the Levites and had the Levites respond to these biblical teachers of the Old Testament? Well, to be honest with you, this story is not too good. In fact, you can remember two guys. If you turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 2 through 4, we have a very concrete example of how the Levites and the priests were supposed to minister, but what they did. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Eli's sons, this is very early in the history of Israel, and we've got a couple of priests here. Eli's sons, look what it says. Instead of them being righteous men committed to the covenant, it says Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. Now we've learned that the Levites, their whole inheritance was supposed to be the Lord. They were supposed to be totally dependent upon the greatness of God's people. Instead of what does our text tell us about these two guys? It says they were wicked and they had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests with the people that whenever any, ever anyone offered a sacrifice, and while the meat was being boiled, the servant of the priest would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would plunge it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself whatever the fork brought up. What did we just learn? Is that what the priest was supposed to do? What did I just instruct you? Were they supposed to just put a big fork down your meat while you were boiling it and just bring up the fork and whatever they got, that was theirs? No, remember, you were supposed to boil it, and then you were instructed, according to the law of Moses, a specific portion, and only that portion alone belonged to the priest. In fact, you could enjoy the rest of it. Instead, Eli's sons went in and just put a big fork in, and they just yanked out whatever they wanted. And it tells us how God thought about that. It says, but even before the fat was burned, in verse 15, the servant of the priest would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the man said to him, let the fat be burned off first and take whatever you want, the servant would answer him, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'm going to take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. In other words, by the time Eli came along, his two sons, instead of having this beautiful relationship where God's people graciously gave the portion of their sacrifice that was due them, instead Eli's son in a power play went in, put a big fork in, took whatever they wanted. In fact, a lot of times they wouldn't even let them begin to boil it because they, liked to, they wanted to roast their meat on a grill. They thought it was more tasty. So they totally disregarded what the Lord had commanded them to do. Now, how would you feel if you were Old Testament saints and these two sons of the priests were doing that? Well, that's the beginning of the feeling of these preachers, these full-time workers. And you thought it was a modern idea that sometimes God's people that are supposed to be teaching the Word of God, get their hands in the till, and they take what doesn't belong to them? One of the most encouraging things to me, as discouraging as it is, is to realize that all the scandals 
which has done untold damage to the kind of thing that I'm talking to you about today. One of the only encouraging things in the midst of all that is that I can open up to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and Eli's sons have already done it and the kingdom of God didn't come crashing down. In fact, we're going to find out what happened to these guys. Look what else they were doing. It says in uh, verse 22, now Eli was very old and he heard about everything that his sons were doing to all of Israel and how they slept with women who served at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. You said, Dave, you mean to tell me that all the sexual scandals, this isn't the very first time in the covenant people of God that people that were supposed to be teaching the word of God, people that were supposed to be leading in worship, were getting involved immorally? Nothing new under the sun. You see, there was a group of women that in the central sanctuary in Eli's time, these women would graciously give of themselves and they would help in the service of the tabernacle. They would help in the preparation of sacrifices and meeting all the multitude of needs that women are always meeting down through the centuries. Strategic jobs and, and really making things work among the covenant people of God. And Eli's sons and the involvement there in the tabernacle, as men and women begin to work together, instead of guarding their hearts, Eli's sons immorally get involved with these women. Dave will be continuing this discussion next week, but we need to be careful not to let a few high-profile bad apples spoil our perception of the men and women of God who are obedient to God's call upon their lives. Eli's sons, greedy and immoral. It looked like they got away with murder in the tabernacle. But join us next time to learn the rest of the story. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Be sure to register to receive Dave's Daily Devotional on our website or check us out on Facebook.